So I gotta tell you guys, um, I do like coming to Thrive, um, but there's something I really don't like about this community here. And that is that every time I come, it makes me feel really old. Now, I, I don't know if you know this, but actually studies have actually been shown that, that pretty much everybody, no matter how old you are, whether you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, uh, that everyone's self-perception of themselves is uh, of, when they're, of, the, of being kind of your age, kind of in their 20s. Um, no matter how old you are, that's how you see yourself. And so just know, I, know it's, I guess it's something about uh, just maybe the, the time of life that you're in, of just kind of, kind of coming into adulthood and then coming into your own. There's something about that that just kind of leaves an imprint. And so probably for the rest of your lives, you'll see yourself as this age, kind of in the indestructible uh, 20s. And I'm no different. I'm 52, but I see myself as a 22-year-old, uh, which just means that I have the spiritual gift of uh, being in denial. And uh, because then, because then I come to thrive, and uh, and I see Devante here, and uh, my associate Devante, and who loves to tell me, uh, remind me that Peter, you were, uh, I was born the year you got married. So thank you, Devante, for always reminding me of that fact. You have the spiritual gift of encouragement, I think. And, and then I come and see my my grown uh, college-aged daughters, Hannah and Megan. And it's just like a slap in my face saying, Peter, you are not 22 anymore. And uh, now I, I was actually going to embarrass Hannah and Megan and show pictures of them as little babies and toddlers. But so you guys dodged a bullet that were outside. So you'll just have to invite me back sometime and I'll embarrass them another time. Um, so, so I understand that you guys are in the book of Psalms, and uh, which I think is really cool. Psalms is, a, I love the book of Psalms. And... Uh, so the psalm that I picked to kind of look on, look at this evening is Psalm 63. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and uh, and turn there if you'd like. Um, before I though kind of land on that psalm and just kind of make some comments about, it, I just want to kind of share um, um, what I what it is I love about the Psalms. And uh, I, I think what I'll just share right now is I think things you, you've already heard from Michael as I was kind of looking at some of his. Uh, topic title. So I think he's probably already shared this as well. But I'll share it again. I love the Psalms just because they're just so raw and real. You know, I mean, the Psalms, they've been called the, the prayer book of the church, but they're not like any prayer book that you would imagine a prayer book of a church uh, to be like. They're just so filled with with raw emotion and, and passion. I mean, the, the, the ones who wrote the, the psalms, these prayers, these worship songs, they were going through all kinds of just raw emotional feelings. Uh, things that they were going through were like a, a just feeling rage, anger, despair, depression, fear. And, and then some of the things that you hear the psalmist say, I mean, some of you are kind of borderline offensive. You, you can kind of take offense at some of the some of the psalms, and and some of the we kind of wonder, can you actually pray that to God? And and so I guess an aspect of all of that that I just really love though is that that because it just really just show how real you can be in prayer and in just expressing your emotions and feelings, it really is instructive for us about what to do with our emotions, on, on giving kind of a biblical view, a healthier view of how to handle our emotions. 
Uh, I love how Tim Keller uh, puts it. He kind of gives a, he kind of touches on, talks about how when it comes to dealing with our emotions, there's often two wrong ways that we do that. Uh, uh, There's kind of one wrong way is is the religious way, and the other wrong way is the secular way. Uh, The religious way is that we kind of tend to kind of deny our emotions, kind of stuff our emotions down, say, oh, I'm not angry. Everything's good. I just, Lord is good. God's good all the time. We kind of put a smiley face on things. And, but then on the flip side, the secular view is also a wrong way of dealing with emotions. The secular way is to kind of just kind of go with your emotions. Just kind of, it's all about finding what your feelings are almost as an end in itself. And, uh, and so the secular way is really to kind of bow to our emotions. And what the Psalms do is that they provide us with this third biblical alternative that whereas you know the religious ways to kind of deny your emotions and the secular ways to kind of just bow to your emotions is to be controlled by your emotions the psalms way is to pray your emotions what, what the psalmist did and, and what they teach us to do is is they they teach us to what they did is that when they prayed their emotions they were really taking their emotions into god's presence they were processing 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 their emotions in the presence of God, who then led them to a solid place to land on. And and I don't know if you notice, but many of the Psalms, they begin with this angst, this cry, the fear, whatever the the despair, whatever the emotion is, but so many of them ultimately land on, on praise of God and confidence of God and trust in God. And uh, that's kind of been my experience, too, in prayer and, 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 uh, and even in kind of the Psalms way of praying. I remember when I was your age, when I was uh, just 20 years old, and I think I was about to turn 21, uh, I had kind of an experience of kind of processing my emotions in the presence of God through prayer. I kind of did the Psalms thing. Uh, I was going through a really difficult time. It was a time of real kind of major uh, life decisions in my life. And I didn't know what to do, and there was some relationship stuff involved there, and I, I had messed some things up, and I was going to have to do some hurt some people. I, I was just a mess, and I was just overwhelmed at this time. I was full of confusion. Uh, I just I had this overwhelming stress, kind of like you know the kind of stress where you feel like it's, you're going it's going to make you physically sick. It was just kind of that weight on me, and I just remember being in that place alone in my bedroom, and just kind of I came to a place where I just kind of decided, you know what? I'm just going to rebel against all these emotions in this, in this, uh, I'm just not going to wallow in it. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to worship God. I just made a decision. I'm going to worship God. Now I wasn't denying my emotions because what I was doing, I was really honest with God. I said, I, I'm angry right now, God, I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm confused, but I'm going to worship you. And so I just took all these emotions into God's presence, and I just took up my guitar, and I said, Okay, God, I'm angry, but I'm going to worship you. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice, and I just got to, it was kind of angry worship. Someday I'm going to write a book called Angry Worship. And, uh, but I, I tell you, as I kind of pr- pressed on with that, at some point, as I just kind of just forced myself to worship, something broke at some point. And, and, and that... It ushered in probably the most powerful worship experience I have had to this day. And, and when it was all over, the circumstances were still there. I still had to deal with some things. But also what was there was a, a peace, a joy, and a, and a deep sense from God saying, Peter, it's going to be okay. 
you're, you're going to make it through this. I'm going to see you through this. And, and he did, and, and, it, and it was. And so, and so I've really learned through the years to really just be brutally honest with God in prayer. Uh, I mean, you might as well. He knows your heart anyway, so you can't fool him. So just be open, be honest with him in prayer, and take even those really deep emotions, passionate emotions, negative emotions into God's presence. Be real with him. Uh, the other thing, though, that I've really kind of learned uh, through the Psalms is that not only can we take those powerful, strong emotions with us into prayer, um, but also those times when we're feeling nothing, when we're not feeling any emotion at all, when, when, we're, when I'm spiritually dry and, and feel apathetic, I've learned in those times to really use the Psalms as a way to kind of help rekindle faith, restart passion, uh, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of the Lord, the scriptures say. And so using the Psalms to kind of rekindle that faith. Uh, Martin Luther uh, did that. Martin Luther wrote a, a book, a little essay one time called A Simple Way to Pray, in which he said when, he's feeling, when, he, was feel, when he would be feeling spiritually dry and unable to pray, he would just start reading the Psalms and he wouldn't stop until he felt his heart warmed, and then he would kind of continue on and enter into prayer. And so, and so I just found that helpful as well, to use the Psalms in those way, in that way as, as a kind of way to, uh, when I'm feeling spiritually dry, when I'm feeling, uh, I needing mean, rekindling in my faith, to, to allow the Psalms to kind of be something that would kind of help uh, stir up that faith again. And to do that, there's a particular group of Psalms that I have found most helpful for that kind of prayer. Or, or for rekindling of our faith through, 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 through prayer, through the Psalms. And, and I think you've been learning that there's different kinds of Psalms, right? There's, there's Psalms of Lamentation, Psalms of Thanksgiving, the Psalms of Praise, uh, Messianic Psalms. Well, there's also this other subcategory of Psalms. I call them thirsty Psalms. There's Psalms that, that speak of our thirst. There's thirsty prayers. Psalms that pray our thirst, and, and one I think you've already talked on, uh, one of my favorites, Psalm 42, I think Michael talked on this one, uh, which is really a psalm about processing depression in God's presence. But, but listen to how the psalm begins, Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And then other psalms that would kind of fall into this thirsting for God category and just kind of this crying out uh, and just kind of passionate seeking after God. Psalm 84, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. In Psalm 143, I spread out my hands to you, O Lord. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And then there's this Psalm 63 that I just want to kind of land on here. Uh, Psalm 63 begins this way, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You know, we really don't know uh, the backstory of, of most of the Psalms. We know the backstory of this one, though. Uh, it's a Psalm of David that he wrote when he was on the run from his son Absalom, who had started a coup against him. And I thought it was kind of cool, because I, I listened to Pastor Kurt's message from last week. I, it was cool to find out that he talked about David last week as well. 
and kind of reviewed some of David's life, and, and I think he landed on Bathsheba and kind of his great sin, but also the joy of forgiveness in Psalm 32, good word. Um, so maybe you can kind of see this as a part two of looking kind of at David's life in some of these psalms. And, and, uh, and so this particular psalm, you know, David, he's, you know, he started out as that shepherd boy, just him and God, singing praise songs under the stars, him and his sheep. But then he kind of consolidated power, became anointed, and there was a season of being on the run, but still depending on God. But then the years go by, and he gets older, and he, uh, he gets to the place uh, where he is, um, um, he's consolidated power, he's got the palace, he's got uh, the riches and all that. And I think he'd gotten comfortable. And so this coup then happens, and his son Absalom and I think some other factions kind of stirred it up. And so he now is on the run. Uh, his son and these other factions have taken over Jerusalem, and he is running for his life. He will be killed if he's caught. And so he's back in the wilderness, back on the run again. As a, he's probably 52. He's probably an old guy like me now. And he's on the run. And, uh, and you know, there's some sad parts of the story. There's some sad aspects to the story. But you know what? I think this is the best thing that could possibly have happened to David. Because I think what happened here is David suddenly finds himself back where he was at the beginning. He's back to square one, back in the wilderness, like when he was back with his sheep and just him and God, worshiping God under the night sky. And, and, and so now he's, he's driven again into the wilderness, like he was running from Saul in the early days, having to depend on God alone. And I think it was a time of renewal of his faith. As, as suddenly now, you know, w w without the palace, I think those things, some of those things have been distractions, the palace and the riches and, and, the, and all of that has now been stripped away. And with all those things stripped away, it brings him back to a place of needing to assess what really matters. And in that place, when he doesn't know if he's going to live or he's going to die, he, he doesn't know how this is going to turn out. He thinks this could be the end for him. And in that moment... When he doesn't know if he's going to live or he's going to, he's going to die, he says this in verse 2 and following, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. You know, he's no longer in the sanctuary. He's been cut off from the tabernacle, but he's remembering it. And he's no longer in the palace feasting on those, the rich banquet foods, but it doesn't matter. His soul is feasting on, on God alone. And like Job, who, who said, though you slay me, yet will I praise you. He's in this moment where he, he, the death is a real possibility. And in this moment, he says, because your life, it's better than life, I will praise you. All I want is you. All I need is you. And as I was just kind of reflecting on this psalm and David's life and him just being able to say that in, in, that, in that moment, your love is better than life. I just started asking myself the question, could I sincerely, authentically say that your love, God, is better than life? Um, could you? 
You know, Paul said that. He said, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Uh, I think I used to be able to say that. I think with greater authenticity than maybe I do even now. I, I remember when I was a teenager uh, a young, or in early 20s, too, like, like yourselves, and, and uh, I had this plaque on my wall. I think I had gotten it as a confirmation gift, and I even wrote a song with these words, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. To me, to live is Christ. And, and so I, I just got to be thinking about those days, you know, maybe when my younger days, when I, I, I think I could with, when it was just me and God, just like David, when he was just out in the stars with the sheep, although I didn't have any sheep, but I had a guitar and I, I would worship God and there was this tenderness and I think I did. I think there was an authenticity there for me of, yeah, your love is better than life and and I just kind of thought about my life and kind of as I progressed and because at some point along the way, I think that dissipated some what. And I, I thought about my life progressing from there. I remember turning 25 and uh, going to seminary. I was still single, but I remember uh, moving from California to Minnesota. And I remember packing up everything I owned into my little Honda Civic. I love that car. Uh, and so I literally packed everything I owned into that Honda Civic, most of which was taking up with my big, tall Yamaha speakers. I love those things. I still have them. My wife has been trying to get rid of them for 24 years. I'm never getting rid of these big speakers. Hannah, Megan, if I die before your mother, do not let her sell those speakers. Bury them with me if you need to. And uh, so anyway, I remember just as a 25-year-old just driving off to Minnesota to go to seminary. And then, I remember four years after that, driving from Minnesota back to California, only now I'm in a U-Haul with a wife in the passenger seat. And then I remember seven years after that, driving from California back to Minnesota, only now I'm in a bigger U-Haul towing a minivan, and I've got three little kids in the passenger seat. And then I remember eight years after that, traveling from Minnesota to here in Gig Harbor with an even bigger minivan and an even bigger U-Haul. Teenagers all sitting in the passenger seat. It's a really big passenger seat. And uh, um, now I love everything about my life. I mean, I love my family. I draw great strength from my wife, my kids. I wouldn't change it for the world, uh, my church family. But the day is going to come when all of those relationships are stripped away. And, and every one of them is, is taken away. And once again, it becomes just me and God alone on my last day, on my death day, the day I breathe my last. Because, you know, the reality is we all die alone. I mean, you may have loved ones by your bedside. I hope I have loved ones by my, I hope Hannah and Megan are by my bedside arguing about who gets the speakers. Uh, but, but ultimately, in that moment, you can't take anybody with you. And so in that moment, as you breathe, you really, it is just you and God. And can't, will I, in that moment, will I be able to say, you, your love, this is okay. Your love, God, is better than life. You are all I need. And that's really what Psalm 63 does for us. It confronts us with this picture of yearning for God and God alone when everything else is stripped away. And, you know, if I th you think about it, I, I kind of wonder if 
that's kind of what this whole pandemic thing has kind of done as well. It's kind of given us a picture, kind of in a short seasonal time, because this will pass, but things have been stripped away from us, hasn't it? I mean, finances have been stripped away, and, and social connections have been stripped away, and, and the, ability, the ability to plan for the future has kind of been stripped away. And even church, I mean, we can still kind of meet, but it's not the same. And while we kind of lament that, there's maybe a sense in which maybe this is a good thing because it confronts us to even ask the question, if even this, our, our faith family is stripped away and it really is just us and God alone, uh, as it will be on that last day, will I be able to say, it's okay, your love is all I need, all I want is you. And so I think we have an opportunity during this strange, weird, crazy pandemic season to really kind of assess uh, before we hit that last day what is with everything stripped away something stripped away right now to to can we like David who had I think the same experience things were stripped away from David he had to reassess what really matters in life when all these other things that he was depending on was stripped away he came to that place ultimately of saying it doesn't matter all I want is you I'm thirsty for for you God you are the cup that I want to drink from to quench the thirst that I have, the real thirst I have. And that we would come to that place too, that he's the cup to drink from. We have a problem though. You know what our problem is? Our problem is that we tend to try to drink from two cups at the same time, from two sources. And it simply can't be done. I, I thought of 1 John chapter 2, 15 and following. It says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And that first phrase there, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, there are two loves to drink from, the world and from God. But you can't drink from both cups. It's, it's not like the Father is saying, I'm not going to love you if you're going to love the world. I'm going to withhold my love for you. That, no, that's not at all. It's just that you can't drink from two cups at the same time. I thought about calling Jeremiah up here and having you actually physically try to drink from two cups of water and just seeing you spill water all over yourself and then we would laugh at you. But I thought, why go through that trouble? Let's just skip right to the part where we laugh at you. So let's laugh at Jeremiah there. I love you, Jeremiah. You're awesome. Um, but you get the picture. You can't drink from two glasses of water. It is physically impossible. You must choose one or the other. And one drink gives life. The other uh, doesn't. So which cup are you drinking from these days? Or are you trying to drink from both cups at the same time? And if so, can you see the mess that you're making spilling both cups all over yourself? And Because you're trying to have it both ways to drink from two sources and it just can't be done. There are two cups, the cup of the world and the cup of Christ. And the Bible has a phrase that talks about describing the exchange of those two cups. You know what it's called? It's called repentance and faith. You know, repentance is just putting down the cup of the world, and faith is just taking up the cup of Christ and drinking from him and him alone. And I think that's what David experienced. You know, he was already a believer, but 
you know, this whole repentance and faith thing, that's not just something that happens when you become a Christian. The whole life of discipleship is a life of daily repentance and faith. I mean, you don't become a Christian all over again. You don't lose your salvation every day. But there's this, there's this aspect of living the Christian life in which you're continually putting off the old, taking on the new, continually putting off the world and, and focusing on Jesus, placing trust in Jesus. We're saved by grace. We live by grace. And so I think that's what, what David did as he kind of has everything stripped away from him and, and he's back on the run in the wilderness like when he was younger and it was an opportunity to reassess the cup he was drinking from. And so he, he drinks from God, drinks from him alone. I'm thirsty for you, God. That's the theme of Psalm 63. So let me just close by asking you a question. Are you thirsty for God? And before you answer that question, let me just kind of say this as well, because here, here's how I kind of used to see this whole thing about being thirsty for God. I used to kind of, would try to kind of mimic these prayers of these thirst for God. I'll, I'd read those, the thirsty psalms, the psalms of thirst for, for God, and, uh, and it, it would, uh, I would, I would kind of just feel hypocritical. Uh, I'd kind of feel kind of guilty because I feel like I don't, I'm not really feeling thirsty for God. Uh, I feel like I should be, and so I kind of just felt hypocritical as I just kind of pray, Oh, God, I'm so thirsty for you, but, but I'm not feeling thirsty. I'm not feeling passionate for God. I'm not feeling that yearning uh, for him, the joy of the Lord. I'm not feeling it. So, so it's just to suddenly cry, Oh, God, I'm so thirsty for you. It made me feel uh, kind of hypocritical until I realized what you're really saying when you're saying you're thirsty, you know what, what? What does it really mean when you say you're thirsty? Well, when you, when you're saying you're spiritually thirsty, you're acknowledging that you're not experiencing the depths of God's love and experiencing His presence. You're not feeling great faith. It, you're, you're you're acknowledging that you're spiritually dry. That's what being spiritually thirsty is by definition. And so if any of you ever feel that way, feel the lack, feel spiritually apathetic, feel your experience of God's presence is not happening for you, then these psalms of thirst are for you and for me. And because there's so many of them in the Bible, I would say that puts us in pretty good company. And so just the call to us here as we close is, is you know, you don't need to try to work something up. You don't try to have to make yourself feel passionate for God. You don't have to try to work up great faith uh, or try to stir up some kind of feeling. Just confess. God, I'm not feeling it right now, but I know I need you. And so I cry out. And what does Jesus promise to do when we do that? in our thirst and our hunger. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be what? Satisfied. He says, ask will be given to you. Knock, uh, seeking you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Do you know what the context of that verse is? It's thirsting for the Spirit. He goes on to say, if you, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So shall we ask? Because that's really 
what happens in, when we cry in our thirst. It's the Holy Spirit who quenches that thirst. Jesus, woman at the well, John 4, this woman, she was drinking from all kinds of wrong cups, these failed dysfunctional relationships. And, and Jesus says, if you knew who it was who was speaking to you and who, who's asking for a grip, you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. A little bit later in John 7, Jesus stands up on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles and says, If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John goes on to say, By this he meant the Holy Spirit. For those who would believe in him would we save. And so I just want to kind of just close just by, by just a simple prayer of just asking God to once again fill us with the Spirit, quench the thirst with His Spirit. Uh, you know, the filling of the Spirit, that's something that's commanded in the Bible. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And, uh, and, and the verb there is be continually filled. It's a command to be go on being filled. Uh, whenever I kind of teach on the Holy Spirit, I, I, I like to use the chocolate milk example. Anybody ever seen that other than One Hope Church people? It's basically this. Imagine I'm holding a glass of milk. And that represents you before you became a Christian, before you came to know Jesus, before you were baptized into Christ, however that happened for you. And what happens when you become a Christian is, is you get all of the Holy Spirit. You never get any more of the Holy Spirit than the moment you place your trust in Jesus. So imagine chocolate Hershey syrup being poured into that glass of milk. Can you picture that? And that Hershey syrup represents the Holy Spirit. And you never get any more of the Holy Spirit. You don't get any more chocolate. But now you've got this glass of milk and, and all the chocolate is there on the bottom, and you can taste the milk, and you, you, know, you kind of detect a little bit of the chocolate, but it still kind of tastes like regular milk. So what do you need to do? Stir it up. Stir it up. You gotta stir up that glass. And then the chocolate fills the glass. And that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You don't get any more of the Spirit. The Spirit just fills you up. And each day the chocolate seeps to the bottom. We need to be stirred up again, again and again. So I just wanna, Closed by a simple prayer, no hype, no emotionalism, just simple prayer. Holy Spirit, come and fill us again. Quench the thirst. This is something you do every single day. It's just part of our devotional life as Christians to go on being filled with the Spirit, being thirsty for God. You don't need to be feeling anything. You can even be feeling a little apathetic, and you just cry out in your thirst, Lord, would you fill me afresh with your Spirit? Because we all come in that place of, of utter desperation. I mean, it's all grace. We all ultimately come as, as beggars. You know what Martin Luther's uh, final words on his deathbed were? He says, we are all beggars. This is true. And he meant that in a positive way. That all, It's all grace. Everything we have has, comes from God. You can't work up anything. You don't deserve anything. He lavishes on us as a gift of his grace. So let's just bow our heads and close our eyes and... And uh, if you want, you can just put your hands out like you're receiving a gift. That's just uh, just kind of a, a outward posture of an inward posture. And, and what I often encourage people to do as I'm just praying for just people to fill with the Spirit and for myself is just to fix your eyes on Jesus. You know, the Holy Spirit never attracts attention to himself. He always puts the focus on Jesus. And so, so Lord Jesus, we just lift you up in this place. We come confessing that we're thirsty. And, and some of us maybe are feeling you know, passion for God right now, and some of us aren't. And we just, it's just not happening for us right now. We're not feeling it, and that's okay. 
And so we just come in that place of just dependence and desperation to say, Lord, we're thirsty. We, we're spiritually dry. Would you come now? And so, Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, we ask you to come. Come and fill us. Fill us afresh again. Holy Spirit, come. Quench the thirst. Bring forth the fruit of your spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Come with your gifts, however you would distribute those. Holy Spirit, just come. Holy Spirit, come now to every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. And I would just encourage you guys to, yeah, go ahead and come up while I'm done. I would just encourage you guys to pray that prayer every day. I kind of want to demystify that for a little bit, demystify the whole filling of the Spirit thing. It's something that we pray every day. I do it every day. I come, I come groggy with my cup of coffee and I'm not really excited about God, and I just say, Holy Spirit, would you fill me up fresh? Do your thing. All right.